According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, picking up where we left off a week ago. I'm kind of curious at the pacing for this class. As I mentioned last week, uh, when we went through Romans, we took about 10. It averaged about 10 weeks per chapter. And so a 16-chapter book like Romans was uh, 160 Sundays altogether. Um, Hebrews is 13 chapters, and I don't know that we're going to average 10 per chapter or not. We kind of have a feel for how long chapter 1 took and how long chapter 2 is taken. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if every chapter gets slower and slower. I don't know. Um, because I, uh, I'm enjoying it. This is a book I've wanted to teach for, for 30 years. And, and now I feel that the Lord is, is speaking in this message, that it's for this flock at this time. The emphasis on our priesthood, our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ is so powerful and is so needed in, uh, in difficult times. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. And honestly, when we get through the first two chapters, in a lot of ways, that's the toughest part of the book. When we talk about the word spoken through angels and the angelic stewardship before humanity, that takes us into some deep realms that most of the Bible doesn't go to. And so uh, we're going to knock that out. We've already passed the, the word spoken through angels verse. We get through that. We get through the end of chapter 2. And then we're introduced to Moses in chapter 3 and the law. And then, and then it's kind of smooth sailing after that. Because who in their right mind would want to trade grace for Mosaic law? <laughs> right? Are you kidding me? Of course, grace is far superior to Mosaic law as Christ is far superior to Moses and uh, things that I think uh, we'll, we'll do very well with. Uh, but first we've got to go through the angel stuff and, and we're still thick in the middle of the angel stuff here in uh, these first two chapters. Okay, So the point is in verse 5, in case he lost track, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So even, uh, even the slowest Bible student on earth can look at that and say, oh, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> okay? The author helps us out here. He says, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the world to come. And it, that the world to come was not subjected to angels. All right? Jesus Christ is the celebrity of the universe. All things have been created through him, but also for him. Everything is headed for his glory. And so the sooner we get on board with that, the better we're going to understand Hebrews and the whole Bible. All right? So, picking up then, with a week ago we were looking at um, verse 9. So let me get through 5 through 8 here just so we're on the same, uh, same page. Uh, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man? that you remember him, or the son of man, that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And so we have Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is brought into application here in Hebrews chapter 2, including divine commentary on translation issues, on how do we handle the Elohim of Psalm 8. The, the fact that he would, he would be made for a little while lower than God, lower than the gods, plural, lower than the angels is the translation here that, that Hebrews gives us. 
in, uh, in this verse. And you have put all things in subjection under His feet. This is the plan of God for the glory of Jesus Christ. But has it happened yet? That's the question we want to ask ourselves. Has it happened yet? Yes, uh, the, the virgin had a baby. That's happened already. Yes, uh, Jesus died on the cross. That's happened already. Yes, He rose from the dead. That's happened already. Yes, He ascended to the Father's right hand. That's happened already. Yes, He took His seat at the Father's right hand. That's happened already. All right, And so we want to identify with the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, but also the session of Jesus Christ. What is He doing in session? What is He doing sitting there? Seated at the Father's right hand. Now we already studied back in chapter 1, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's part of what He does while He's sitting and waiting, but He's not doing nothing while He's waiting. He's actually interceding on our behalf. He's serving as the head of the church. He ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. And so when we understand what he's not doing yet with what he's doing now, that helps us. That helps us as church age believer priests so that we don't get distracted, so that we don't get um, improperly adjusted to the coming kingdom. The kingdom's not here yet. The kingdom is not here yet. Our king is still in heaven. We're here but we're still being prepped for that day. Jesus has been prepped, but we're getting prepped. And so uh, it requires the king and his bride both to be prepped before the king and his bride will return and will rule on this earth as the millennium unfolds. All right? So that's what we're looking at. I have not yet prayed. Is that correct? Then I should pray extra hard. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much. This is an amazing book, and Father, it plunges into depths that, uh, that I just am amazed and humbled by. And I thank you that at this time you are feeding this flock this powerful truth, and I pray that we would grab hold of it. I pray that we would not shy away from it. I pray even, even the younger believers among us today, Father, can, can grab a hold of what you provide. I thank you for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that leads us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so, Father, I pray that we take hold of what you're providing us today, that uh, we would study it, we would learn it, we would believe it. And, uh, Father, receiving it implanted by faith, it might spring forth to save our souls. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so once uh, we get through 6, 7, and 8, we finished the Psalm 9 quotation, or Psalm 8 quotation. And... uh, So you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And the way that it's written, of course, is a quotation from how it's written in uh, in Psalms. And it it appears at first glance that, well, that must already be done already because everything else is done already. The the, the virgin birth is done, the cross is done, the resurrection is done, the ascension is done, he's sitting down, that's done. Uh, So why do we think that this uh, subjection isn't done yet? Well, we think that the subjunction isn't, this subjection isn't done yet because the verse tells us it's not done yet. We don't see it yet. And that might be a better way to think about it. But it says at the end of verse 8 here, in subjecting all things to Him, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now, notice, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. All right? So we don't see it yet. That's important. What do we see? Because we don't see that. What do we see? And this then becomes important. So we have these theological statements of what the Father has done in terms of subjecting all things under His feet, 
And if we want to insist that, okay, that's a past completed action because of Psalms, because of Hebrews, all right, fine, I'll go with you there. I will agree that it is a completed action. However, we don't see it yet. How about that? That it's completed in the mind of God, it's completed in the plan of God, it's completed in the heavenly places. But until the enemies are made a footstool, until God says, all right, go get your bride, until he sends his son back after the rapture, the second advent, to reign on this earth, then we're not going to see it yet. We don't see it today. We look around today and what we see is horrible. We see a fallen world getting worse, okay? Which is why I recommend, and the Bible commands, we quit looking at the things below. We keep our attention on the things above. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so I like the contrast when we switch from verse 8 to verse 9, and it's, it's, it's translated very well in English. I like the New American Standard rendering here. He says, but now in verse 8, we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see, in verse 9, here's what we do see, all right? If you have the eyes to see and you're looking in the right place, here's what you're going to see. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. So we see him. We see him today. We can fix our eyes on Jesus all day, every day. We have the eyes to see. We have the ears to hear. You and I are a heavenly people and we better be heavenly focused. We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's who we see, all right? We see him in the heavenly places. We see him seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is seated there because he was victorious on the cross. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? None of them. None of them. Zero. Nobody was worthy. Nobody could sit on that seat because it was, none of them went to the cross. It was Jesus who accomplished our redemption. It was Jesus who rose in victory. It was Jesus who ascended and led captivity captive when he emptied out Abraham's bosom in Sheol. And it was Jesus that the Father said, have a seat, sit at my right hand. That's who we fix our eyes on, the victorious Jesus seated in session. And when you really start to grab a hold of this and embrace this and start loving this, start identifying how powerful this is, then perhaps you will start to obtain the same sickness I have when I look at a Roman crucifixion. It bugs me to death when I go to a hospital or a place, wherever, and they've got this Roman Catholic crucifix thing going on with Jesus still on the cross. I got to tell you, Jesus isn't on that cross anymore. Okay? He died, he was taken down, he was buried, he rose again. And that's what we fix our eyes on the crucified and risen Lord, seated in session. Because the key to to what he's doing now in session is vital for us today in the church age. Because he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And we are participating in that same Melchizedek priesthood that uh, under Christ. Think about how powerful that is. And uh, the book of Hebrews is going to teach us that. All right. And so in uh, verse 9 then, uh, the, present, the present session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father is something we do presently see. 
And if you don't see it today, start looking. See it today, see it tomorrow, see it every day. It's our privilege to fix our eyes on Jesus. Colossians 3.1, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that powerful? Your life is hidden. Your Zoe is hidden with Christ in God. Okay? Last year we had our Zoe study, or last hour we had our Zoe study from, uh, from Philippians 2. That's our life in Christ, is our Zoe. And it's hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? If we're hidden with Christ in God, what does that mean? That means when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with Him in glory. A reason why the kingdom can't be here yet is because the bride isn't finished yet. We're still a work in progress. It requires the revelation of Jesus Christ and the revelation of His bride. And so I would encourage you, uh, not only Hebrews 2.9, but also Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know, we understand the author, the source of our faith. We understand the beginning, the day we got saved. But what about the perfecting? That's the day we're, we're perfected. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we're not there yet. I know we're not there yet because I'm looking at you. I'm looking at me. We're all here still. We're growing 2 Corinthians 3.18 and uh, Colossians 3.1. And uh, these also should be familiar to you. That's your fixing your eyes on the things above since we have been raised up in Christ. The pinnacle of Jesus' humbling was the suffering of death, which became causative for the pinnacle of Jesus' glorification. And it's hard to think of these what-ifs because, you know, what if Jesus failed? What if Jesus disobeyed? What if Jesus didn't go to the cross? And, and I admit it's not pleasant to consider just the, on, a, on a mental exercise of the possibility of our Savior failing. But Jesus brought up the topic himself, so I, I, we'll, we'll go there, okay? In prayer, Jesus said, what shall I say? Let this cup pass me by. He voiced it out loud as a possibility that what if he didn't fulfill the Father's plan? That's why he immediately said, oh, no, 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 not my will, but thine be done. And he submitted to go to the cross and he obeyed the Father in that. But nevertheless, understand what happens if he doesn't go? What happens if he's not victorious? What happens? We don't get saved. All right? It was necessary, absolutely necessary. And it is described, and Philippians does this, Philippians 2 describes this as the pinnacle of humility, that he was made in the likeness of man, that he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that's described as the ultimate, the pinnacle of humility. And even worse than dying on a cross, I mean, the the, the Romans crucified thousands. They conquered Jerusalem and crucified 70,000 in one day. I mean, they, they they were masters at crucifixion. So the crucifixion is not unique. Other humans have been crucified. But accepting the wrath of God for the sin of humanity, that's unique. No one else could or would or did accept the totality of infinite wrath upon sin, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's the pinnacle of His humbling, the suffering of death, the spiritual death that separated Jesus Christ from God the Father, the pinnacle of His suffering. And it becomes causative for the pinnacle of his glorification. The glory after is greater than the glory before the foundation of the world. 
Didn't he pray that? In, in John 17, he said, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And the Father said, I have both glorified you and will glorify you again. Because Jesus, yes, he humbled himself. He's going to get all of that glory back, all of the glory that he laid aside in the kenosis. He's going to get all of that back and more. He's going to, have an, he's going to inherit a more excellent name than they. He's going to inherit the glory that is greater than any name that's ever been named or ever will be named. And it's causative. Now, if I don't totally understand it, I can at least read it and try to explain it, but it's because of. Verse 9 says, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned. So the crowned can't happen without the because. Because of the suffering of death. Because of the, the pathema, the pasco, the suffering, right? The passion of the Christ. Because of the passion comes the crown. And, and the sooner we embrace that and identify that, I think we'll be able to start rejecting all of Satan's temptations and his lies. Satan loves to come along and offer you a crown without the, without the cross. Loves to offer you blessings without suffering. He said, oh, well, that's so wrong. That's God. You deserve better than that. And here, like he told Jesus, you can have all these kingdoms of the world. You don't have to go to the cross. You just have to bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no. All right, you shall worship God and Him only. So it's causative. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 is causative. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but if you missed it last week, um, I want you to get it today. Philippians 2, verses 8 and 9. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, for this reason. Notice, for this reason. That's because. It's causative. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Think about that. The name. Jewish people were always reverent for the name. They wouldn't even pronounce the name. They would just say the name and because they didn't want to say Yahweh. Okay? So they would say the name. To this day, Jewish people will talk about the name. And yet, that's the Old Testament perspective. The name Jesus has now is even greater, far and above, because of the suffering of death. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. So that's what we have coming up in Philippians. I love how Hebrews and Philippians are blending together this way. And then John ten seventeen. For this reason, the Father loves me. You ever wonder, why does the Father love the Son? Well, why wouldn't He? But if you think about it, does He need a reason? You know, agape love doesn't need a reason. Agape loves because God is love. And when you agapao love, it's based on your character and integrity and does not take into account the merit of the object. That's why you and I sometimes have a hard time loving Jesus apart from His merit. Because we look at Jesus and that's all we see is his merit. And we go, wow, we love because he first loved us. And, and Jesus is just so awesome and wonderful. Of course, I phileo him, but I'm commanded to agapao him. And I'm commanded to love for my own integrity and character, not on the basis of any merit in the object. And it's kind of hard to do to separate merit from Jesus because he has infinite merit. But here's the father who loves the son for a lot of reasons, of course. But here is one spotlighted reason. For this reason, the Father himself loves me 
because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. This is the great uh, shepherd passage here of the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. And in John 10, Jesus is talking about being the shepherd and laying down his life for the sheep. And it's for this reason the Father loves me. Okay? Now we can relax a little bit and say for this and many other reasons. But for this reason specifically, and for this reason maybe most of all, for the unique singularity of Calvary, the unique singularity of Jesus Christ accepting the totality of infinite wrath from God the Father. No angel did that. To which of the angels did he say, sit on my right hand? So because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And he obeyed. He fulfilled it perfectly. He went to that cross. Darkness descended and he laid down his life. He accepted the wrath of God and spiritual death on our, on our behalf. We're the sinners. We should have been there. But he was there in our place. And then the darkness ended. The work of redemption was finished. He took up his life again and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. I don't think he said that as a spiritually dead human being. I think he took up his life again. This passage says, authority to take it up again. He took it up again and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. A living spirit. And then he physically died and went to the grave for three days. All right. So the pinnacle. And remember, this is what the plan of God is all about. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. And so who's the champion of humility? Jesus Christ. The ultimate, the pinnacle. No human will ever be more humble than Jesus because of Calvary. And so no human will ever be rewarded to the degree as Jesus, right? The pinnacle of suffering, the pinnacle of rewards. And so to whatever extent you suffer with him, to that extent you will also reign with him. To that extent you will also be rewarded with him. It comes down to our willingness to be humble and our reward that's proportional to that. And so we see it there. All right. Now the last thing, and and I, I, I didn't want to spend five minutes just racing through it last Sunday, so I saved it for this morning. And if I spend a whole hour on this, it's not enough. The grace of God, the grace of God assigned Jesus' spiritual death as substitutionary, vicarious work of salvation and sanctification. Let's understand what, what grace does. Grace was satisfied. The Father was propitiated. Not only for Jesus' sake, but beyond Him, on behalf of everybody. The grace of God assigned Jesus' spiritual death as the one and only, substitutionary, vicarious work of salvation and sanctification. And this really unfolds verses 9 and 10, and we don't want to miss the grace in this, the wisdom of God in this, the amazing plan of God in this, how this has a resolution to the angelic conflict because it's not uh, each individual sinner reaping what they've sown or getting what they've earned and deserved. 
but it's the grace of God providing a salvation because someone else has made a payment on your behalf. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The grace of God assigned Jesus' spiritual death as a substitutionary vicarious work of salvation and sanctification. The one and only. So now notice, verse 9, there's grace. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that, here's a purpose clause, so that in the plan of God, the, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It is the grace of God that accepted his priestly work on the cross as vicarious substitutionary work of salvation and sanctification. He accepted it on those terms. His spiritual death was in place of, on behalf of, and for the sake of fallen humanity in Adam. And I tell you, 50 years ago, this was not even controversial. This was basic, this was standard, this was normal. But over the last 20 years, substitutionary atonement is going the way of too many other things. It is falling out of um, favor. It is falling out of fashion. And uh, I'm not certain, other than Schaefer, what seminaries are still teaching, the substitutionary theory of atonement, rather than all the other theories that have been discredited throughout church history. They seem to be going to trying to create a new theory that can discount substitutionary vicarious atonement in spite of what the plain language of Scripture says. So I'm not going to let my flock uh, be damaged by such um, terrible things that are happening in uh, uh, Christendom today. Notice, though, it's by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He tastes it instead of us. We deserve it. We deserve it, but he's, he's taking the price. He's paying it. And if you think about it, is, this is also the flip side of the coin of what he did when he judged Adam. Did you ever consider the grace of God when Adam sinned? Because there's Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they're naked, she's listening to the snake, he probably is too. She eats first, she gives it to him, he eats. When he eats then, the eyes of both of them are opened. If you think I'm wrong about that, go read it this afternoon, okay? Her eyes aren't open when she eats. Both of their eyes, his and hers, are opened when he eats. Adam is the federal head, that's key. And so when he eats then, God said, the day you eat of it, dying you will die. And he is struck dead immediately. But not physically. He doesn't physically drop dead. They're still looking around. They spot, ooh, wait a minute, we're naked. That's a problem. They, they sow fig leaves together. They get all scared when they hear Jesus walking in the garden. They didn't physically drop dead that day. So what happened? They died spiritually. And Eve died spiritually when Adam sinned. Because Eve is in Adam. Okay, being a previous rib, she, uh, she came from Adam. And so when Adam sinned, now here's the thing. Why were her eyes open when Adam sinned? Because God in his grace, you ever think about this? God in his grace struck Adam with spiritual death, not just Adam personally, 
But by the grace of God, he struck Adam and the Adamic humanity he struck with spiritual death. That's why Eve's eyes were opened. That's why every human born in Adam is spiritually dead. That's why you were born spiritually dead. I was born spiritually dead. Mom and dad brought me home from, not Swedish hospital, Matt was Swedish hospital. I was a group health hospital in Seattle, Washington. Brought me home and I was spiritually dead because of Genesis 3. In Adam all die. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Aorist tense. We were there. We sinned. We sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned. And that's, think about it. How grace of God is that? That's total grace of God. That means because of one condemnation, God is now free to send one reconciliation, one Savior. Through one man, we all became sinners. Through one man, we all can receive eternal life. So we have the beauty of God's grace. So don't overlook grace. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He went to the cross and said, I want to have Bob Olander's sin. I want to have everybody's sin. Every sin that's ever been sinned. Every sin that will ever be sinned. From the Garden of Eden to the destruction of the heavens and the earth. Okay? Every sin, because there's no more sin after the new heavens and new earth. But every sin that's ever been committed or ever will be committed from Adam eating the, not an apple, from Adam eating the, uh, uh, whatever, pomegranate. I mean, who knows, whatever it was. It just wasn't an apple. I grew up in Washington State and we're very fond of our apples. (laughs) But when Adam ate whatever fruit that was, that was the first overt sin by Adamic humanity to the very last sin of the millennium. Jesus accepted all of that. And the Father judged all of that. Wrath was poured out. And Jesus accepted all of that. And by the grace of God, the Father was satisfied that He was prepared to be the substitute to do that that very work. So, Jesus' spiritual death was in place of, on behalf of, and for the sake of fallen humanity. Fallen humanity in Adam. And I hope you're familiar with these passages already. But Isaiah 53, Romans 3, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3. Do you know what all these are about? What do you think of when you think Isaiah 53? You you think the suffering suffering shepherd, right? Suffering Jesus. So Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. I've got a couple of Jewish friends and they don't know anything about this uh, chapter. It, It never gets taught. Never comes up in any, in any synagogue service. Never part of their liturgy. Isaiah 53. And I won't read the whole thing, but um, you know, this is obviously Jesus. Grew up before Him as a tender shoot, as a root out of parched ground. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He wouldn't do well with American politics. <laughs> you know, you got to be tall, dark, and handsome and have all the... Anyway, he didn't have any of that. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, acquainted with, intimate with, joined to, okay? Somebody cleaving with grief, you know? 
It's, it's a, it's, it can be a sexual term, but it's, it's, it shows an intimacy here of what Jesus uh, experienced, grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. So is it substitutionary or not? He wasn't bearing his own griefs. He was bearing our griefs. It has to be substitutionary. And our sorrows he carried. Not his sorrows, he had plenty of them, but they weren't his. They were, he was carrying ours. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. This is why it's vicarious substitutionary. All right. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Substitutionary. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. So he accepts our judgment and we receive his blessing. His righteousness, his eternal life, his healing, his power. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that right there, that's Hebrews 2, uh, 9, 9 and 10, right? Because God the Father caused in his grace all of our sins to be imputed to his account. Caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered his generation, you know, the, the, the very perpetrators of his murder, they said, his blood be upon our head and our children. So defiant, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. We have no, no God but Caesar. You know, things like this. No king but Caesar. Think about that. His generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Let's face it, we deserve this, but he took it. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, verses 10 through 12, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. So God the Father, this is a passage where Yahweh is the Father and the servant is is the Son. So God the Father was pleased. Now we start to understand propitiation and satisfaction and what the Father does to accept the work of the Son. The Father was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he, the Son, would volitionally be the sacrifice, render himself as a guilt offering. The father won't kill the son until the son is willing volitionally to be the sacrifice. That's why Isaac walks up the mountain side by side with Abraham. That's why Isaac carries his own wood up the mountain in Genesis 21, as Jesus carried his own cross. The son has to be volitionally on board. The father won't accept a sacrifice if it's grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus Christ has to do this in his own volition. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Literally, he will see offspring. The his is supplied, and it's not entirely appropriate. It kind of is, but it's not entirely appropriate. He will see offspring. The first offspring he will see are his brethren, brothers and sisters that are offspring of God the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. 
in the new heavens and new earth, he'll see more offspring. He'll see his own offspring when Jesus fulfills the eternal father promises. He will see offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So go to the cross and you will prolong your days. How's that? (laughs) You know, it's like Elijah telling the widow, yeah, you got oil left for one cake left. Great. Make me the first one. You can have the one after that. All right. Are these powerful? And these, these, these are the stories we learn in Sunday school, but the doctrine contained in these stories is, 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 is crucial. How God operates. And so uh, this is an if. If he would render himself, he will see offspring. If he doesn't, he won't. He won't be crowned with honor and glory. He won't receive a name above every name that is named. He won't prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Father will not prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul. This is why I say, when you read Isaiah 53, 11, we understand propitiation in ways we wouldn't understand otherwise. As a result of the anguish of his soul. In other words, because of the victory in, in Gethsemane, the Father will accept the work of Golgotha. Gethsemane was the anguish of his soul. He told the disciples, my soul is, is grieving to the point of death. Okay? As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That is, the Father will be propitiated. Propitiated what? That the Redeemer is qualified to do the work. That the Redeemer volitionally knows what it's going to cost him. The Redeemer volitionally accepts the totality of human sin. Because see, it's through his knowledge. By his knowledge, Jesus had to learn this. And Hebrews teaches us that he learned through what he suffered. Jesus had to learn this. It was the suffering of Gethsemane that satisfied the Father that said, all right, tomorrow you go to the cross. So by his knowledge, my servant, or the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. God the Father will not qualify Jesus to be the justifier until through the sufferings he acquires this knowledge that he can volitionally be on board with every bit of wrath that the Father is pouring forth. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with a great. Because he did this, here is what he gets. I will allot him a portion with a great. He will divide the booty with the strong because, causative, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He wasn't a sinner. But he who knew no sin was made to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You know, he hung there and he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I just, I I don't get that. My carnal mind, my human mind, my finite mind struggles. I wouldn't be doing that. But he did. Okay? So, this is the grace of God that accepts Jesus Christ as the justifier We're the justified. In Hebrews, he's the sanctifier. We're the sanctified. 
so that those who are sanctified and the one who sanctifies are, are brethren. They come from one Father. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Not ashamed to call us brethren. More glory. All right, so um, this is the doctrine in Romans. This is the doctrine in 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter. And I want to make sure that everybody is solid on this. Romans 3, 22 through 26. You know, law couldn't do this. If law could have made us righteous, then uh, God the Father would have just gone with that and said, okay, keep the law. But nobody could keep the law. So uh, Romans 3.21, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. There it is. Justification by faith. Basic Protestant Christianity. Okay? <laughs> there it is. Last night, Sharon and I got to see a, um, a musical uh, stage production on the Reformation. And at uh, Triumph and Love Lutheran Church, they had a Friday show, a Saturday show. Their final finality uh, is today at 3 p.m. They got a matinee. Um, and a marvelous musical stage production on Martin Luther, on the Reformation, and Kate, and their, how they got married, and the 95 Theses and the Pope and all that. It was, it was, the Pope was funny. The, 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 the songs and all of that. John Tetzel and the indulgences he was preaching. Um, and they sang faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone. I thought, wow. And here we are in the 500th anniversary of, uh, of the Reformation. And it was fun watching them nail the Theses to the church door. And, and there it was. Anyway. So if you're not busy at three o'clock, you might think about that. I liked it. But here it is. The justice of God, and we are justified by grace. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For notice, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, do you think that's a catalog of all the bad things you did? You know, when you were a little kid, you stole a cookie and then you pushed your sister down and then, you know, you got a long list of sins you've done since you were two and uh, maybe even earlier than that if you were a go-getter. Uh, but, you know, how many sins have you done in your life and none of them are in verse 23? For all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Isn't that powerful? And it goes on, um, there's more, 25 and 26, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. You see that? God not only does everything amazing, God puts it on display. God wants us to see how amazing He is in the things that He's doing. He wants angels to see how amazing He is in the things that He's doing. Everything has to be on display. That's why we have a millennium. That's why we have a thousand generations in the new earth. Because God is displaying His righteousness for a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. God is the inventor of show and tell. He is uh, showing us everything that He's doing. So this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Every human sin from Adam to Jesus, uh, from Adam and the apple to whatever on the cross, 
He passed over all of that in righteousness as he prepared for the justifier. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God had to prepare the justifier so that the justified would be brethren with the justifier. And that took 4,000 years or more of uh, 6,000 years. That took, that took human history to prepare for the birth of the Messiah, for his perfection, for his ministry, for his work on the cross. And that meant there was a whole lot of sin in between Adam and Jesus for which uh, they could be justified waiting for a future justifier. Sins could be covered and passed over but not removed until the prepared justifier comes and justifies. So all of this, and it all is a demonstration, for a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Romans 5, 18 and 19. And there's more. I mean, I could back up to 12. Or I could back up and read the whole chapter, but let's just start with verse 18. Um, so then, as through one transgression, okay, Adam and the pomegranate, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one crucifixion, one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. It's about the tree Adam ate from and the tree Jesus hung on. Okay? I mean, it's that simple. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. That's it. That's what it comes down to. It's not about the sins you do. The sins you do. All right. Anyway, uh, how about uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21? 2 Corinthians 5.21. And I think Paul wrote 2 Corinthians right before he wrote Romans. So this was really heavy on his heart. He's writing it. He writes it to the Corinthians. Then he arrives in Corinth, spends three months with them, and uh, writes Romans and writes all those deep things that we just got finished reading in Romans uh, 3 and 5 and 6. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He was the sin offering, but he was the the, the, the sin itself, made to be sin, judging it himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We receive his righteousness, we become his righteousness in Christ in Christ. Notice, on our behalf. How does any theologian read on our behalf and then go write a systematic theology and say that the atonement is not, that the substitutionary uh, theory of atonement is not biblical? It is absolutely biblical. It is biblical in every respect. Old Testament, New Testament, any passage you look at. (coughs) And yet there it is. 1 Peter 2, 24. 
Here's Jesus. And in, see, they, they look at verse 21 and they say, see, he's an example to follow. So they reject the substitutionary theory. They prefer the moral example theory. They prefer other theories of the atonement. Um, and yet, this very passage they use to support their moral influence theory also contains vicarious substitutionary atonement. So, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you on your behalf, substitutionary in your place, suffered on your behalf, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Meaning, not to redefine atonement, but there's an example for us. We should be sacrificial in our love. We should be willing to lay down our lives on behalf of the saints. We should be willing to suffer and learn by the things which we suffer, preparing us for our millennial and post-millennial resurrection work assignment. Who committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth. That's Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but keeping and trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins. Whose sins? Tell me this is not substitutionary. Our sins. He took my place. He bore my sins on the cross, on his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The reconciliation we have in Christ is such a beautiful thing. This is our new relationship with the Father because of what the Son did. All right, finally then 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. I love that. So... uh, how do you do a Catholic Mass with that kind of a verse? They crucified Jesus over and over and over again. Every time they turn the bread and the wine into the body and blood and we're going to, let's sacrifice them again. No, how about once and for all? The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Anyway, he had work to do when he was in the grave and he did it. So you take all those passages and you come back to Hebrews and you say, thank you, God, for the grace that uh, condemned me in Adam and the grace that uh, saves me in Christ. So because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When he comes back a second time, it's without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. Because sin has been taken off the agenda, (laughs) okay? It's been thrown behind his back as far as the east is from the west, sealed up in a bag, plunged in the depths of the sea. Father didn't want to see it ever again. Jesus doesn't want to see it ever again. All right, what a blessing for us. He might taste death for everyone. Then verse 10, for it was fitting, proper, appropriate, right. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, there is a ton of doctrine here, and I've got eight minutes left, nine minutes left. Um... So we'll start with it and we'll see where we get and come back next week. But it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was proper. 
in uh, bringing many sons to glory. How many sons are there? What is the body of the redeemed? How many believers are there? We don't know, but the Father does. All right. And, uh, you know, how many believing Gentiles before Abraham? How many believing Jews and believing Gentiles after Abraham? How many believing bride from Pentecost to rapture? We don't know the number, but he does. Because he knows the hairs on our head. He knows the number of the bride. He knows all these things. And when the bride is complete, that trumpet's sounding and we're out of here. So he knows all these things. How many are going to get saved in the tribulation? So many, he, he says, the author of Revelation, John, says John couldn't count them when he was writing Revelation. He could count 144,000. He could count them myriad upon myriads. But those that were getting saved, John said, I can't count that many. There's going to be a lot saved in the tribulation. How many saved in the millennium? How many get saved during the thousand-year reign of Christ? All right, so the totality of how many get saved. See, there are critics out there. They don't like the problem of evil. They don't like, they think it's a philosophical objection to God's existence. That if God really was a God of love, wouldn't God have created a universe where everybody got saved? Why does God allow unbelievers? Why does God allow people to reject the gospel and die and go to hell? If he was truly a loving God, then he would have created a universe where everybody gets saved. And that's part of their false, uh, it's it's just a false argument, but they think it's brilliant. Um, But see, here's the thing. Consistent with volition, a world that they're envisioning may not be possible. Or it may be the only way that it's possible to have 100% positive volition, 100% accept the gospel, would be uh, a heaven that has one person in it. Jesus, okay, or whoever. You had that second person, you had a third person, you had five people. Okay, I'll be generous. Maybe there's 10 people. Does God want to spend all eternity with 10 people? What's his plan? And so philosophically then, there are Christian philosophers that then answer this on a philosophical basis saying that uh, God in designing volitional beings accepts the fact that there will be volitional rejection and that there will be unbelievers in the lake of fire for all eternity. And he, is, he accepts that as the consequences of bringing many sons to glory. He also accepts the fact that his son has to die in order to bring many sons to glory. He accepts that fact also. And so this is, this is a part of the have-tos that God puts himself through. God is, it's not, it's not God diminishing his sovereignty. This is God choosing what gives him the greatest pleasure, even though it also involves pain. It involves suffering, it involves hurt. You think it was not just the son that was hurt on the cross. Do you think the father was having a good day that day? That's why it was Abraham's test in Genesis 30 to 21. The father volitionally put the son to death. And that was grievous to the father, we're told. So uh, we got some themes here. Like I say, we get into some deep things, but bringing many sons to glory and however many billions they're going to be in glory, I hope it's billions, maybe it's only millions, but however many they're going to be in glory, yes, there will also be billions in, uh, in the lake of fire. And there are some God-haters that can't accept that. 
And so they think it's a fatal flaw in our theology and, and uh, so forth. Anyway, if you want more on that, we can get into that later. How about, though, uh, we talk about what's fitting, what's appropriate, what's proper. You know, God himself observes every aspect of propriety. Something I think we've lost in our culture. Is there anything as this whole standard of proper and improper? Things that ought not be mentioned and yet they talk about it all the time. Things that ought not be, it's not fit for decent company. And it just seems like there's no degradation that's beyond the pale that anything is, is, is available for, you know, is, is, do we even have standards of propriety anymore? I don't know. But um, nevertheless, biblically speaking, God holds himself to his own standard. God has put forth a plan whereby he has created volitional beings and God accepts the consequences of those volitional exercises. And God accepts what is proper for himself God operates on what is a proper basis for himself. And that doesn't mean that he's hamstrung. I have met some Calvinists that don't like this doctrine. They think that God doesn't have any, he has no have-tos. There's nothing he has to do. No one tells him, well, he tells himself what he has to do. And he limits himself what he will not do. He will not tolerate iniquity in the solemn assembly. He cannot lie. There's a lot of things he cannot do. There's a lot of things he will not do because he observes his own propriety. Anyway, and Jesus did as well, all throughout. Think about Matthew 3.15. Propriety. Is it right? Is it proper? Is this pleasing in the Father's sight? Is it fitting or is it not fitting? So Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And so there's the, what's appropriate, what's fitting? Jesus won the sinner. He had no sins to repent of. He had no need to repent of his sins and confess his sins while he was being baptized. But it was fitting for him to be baptized because he was publicly identifying with the sinners that he came to save. And there it was. It'll come back again in chapter 7. Hebrews 7.26 It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You know, in the Old Testament, they had high priests, but they were all sinners, (laughs) right? And they were all sinners. And so the first thing they had to do was go offer a sacrifice for themselves. And then with that taken care of, then they can go offer a sacrifice for the people. But still the fact remains that they were also sinners. Jesus shows up. He doesn't need a sacrifice for himself. And he's able to become the eternal sacrifice for all of us. Likewise, those Jewish high priests, uh, they kept dying all the time. And so the son would become the next high priest, and then he would die. And the son would become the next high priest, and he would die. And uh, in fact, some Jews in their sins were kind of waiting for the high priest to die, because that was the only way they could get a certain uh, thing forgiven there. (coughs) Anyway, we have the superiorities of Jesus and his priesthood here. He didn't have to give a sacrifice for himself. Yet, 
it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. That's why we have eternal life. That's why we are saved to the uttermost. All right, so propriety. It's fitting, it's proper, it's appropriate. And God himself observes every aspect of propriety, all right? So we'll pick up this, to bring many sons to glory. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. We're going to talk about why did God create Jesus was the creator. It was through him that everything was made, but it was also for him that everything is made. It's all for him, for his sake. All right, which is why the Father accepted him as the substitute for our sake. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your faithfulness, for your glory, for your grace. I pray, Father, that we will be equipped. There's a lot of theology today, Father, and yet there it is, laid out in black and white and Simple as you look at it. I thank you, Father, that uh, he bore our sins himself on the cross, that we receive his righteousness simply by believing. Believe in Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. How easy is that? And I thank you because he died for everyone, anyone, whosoever will may come. And Father, I pray right now, there could be somebody sitting here that that, uh, is finally for the first time ever, it's making sense to them, that it's not all the bad things they've ever done. It's our position in Adam and it's our need for Christ. I pray that the grace of God would come alive and that uh, today could be the day that, uh, that, that they place their faith in Christ unto eternal life. Father, I thank you for your work. I thank you for your power. I thank you for Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, Father. And he wrote that powerful and mighty fortress is our God. We've been singing it all month and I thank you for it, Father. Uh, Thank you for the victory that's ours. Lord, Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.